yeah, a lot different that's going on this evening. So I'm going to preach a little bit loudly tonight. Uh, maybe it's just normal, but um, it's okay for you to say like amen and praise your brother or, you know, things like that. Um, but if you have private conversations that are a little bit loud, we will forever immortalize that conversation through the live stream, just so you know. Okay. <laughs> so if you have something private to, to discuss, you might want to do it like real, real quietly. Awesome. Uh, <laughs> I look forward to Father's Day. Tomorrow is Father's Day. And one of the things that I enjoy so much about, in all honesty, Father's Day is probably one of my most favorite days of the year. Above my birthday and, and Christmas, the reason why I love Father's Day so much is because my children really have understood this concept of what it means to honor. And I always Amen. feel so blessed and honored <laughs> on my on Father's Day. Now, tomorrow morning, and Julian has already discussed this with me, I get to eat, and, and correct me if I'm mistaken, I think it's bacon, uh, blueberry pancakes, or eggs a part of that. I, we do have eggs if I want eggs. Um, and did I mention bacon? Yeah, there's, there's going to be bacon there for sure. And so I, I really enjoy just how, how my kids love on me that day. Maybe it's selfish, but the, the truth is I love Father's Day. I love being able to spend that day with my family. Uh, God has blessed me with five amazing kids. And as my wife said, we've been now married 39 years as of a week and a day ago. 39 years. And I, I can just tell you right now, I got the, be I got the better half of that in. But the truth is that I look forward to Father's Day. I can't say that I've always been a grateful kind of person. Um, and I want to ask you this evening, how do you personally tend to respond to kindness in your life. Not just God's kindness, but that's what we're going to be looking at more specifically tonight. But how do you respond when people extend kindness to you? I can remember growing up, I was an unkind, I was an, in, I was an ungrateful child. My mom sacrificed so much for us. She was a stay-at-home mom. She cooked all of our meals. She... You know, she did such an amazing job of raising us. I mean, there were five boys and one girl. Just try doing that sometimes. And I can remember, though, in response to that, because some of the times she would say, you know what, it is below 60 degrees, and you need to put your jacket on. Now, maybe for you Floridians who were born and raised here, 60 degrees on Earth is like nothing. I mean, how many of you are... Cole, where's Cole? Uh, how many of you share? You were from Michigan. Yes. When did you start putting a jacket or a sweater on? What was the temperature roughly? Any well, idea? About 50. About 50. There we go. Yeah. That's generally. I mean, you're from Pennsylvania, right, Brandon? And, like, what temperature would you start putting a jacket or sweater on? I'm different. <laughs> 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 Before it was 50. But anyway, in response to that, I would just 
shit so quickly? Well, she, Mom, I'm, she would say, put a jacket on or put a sweater on because I'm cold. I said, but Mom, I'm not, just don't argue with me. And so, get a load of this. I started a mother haters club. Yes, I started a mother haters club in my neighborhood. Just so you know, it wasn't that well attended. And it didn't last too long. Uh, it didn't last too long for me. I got over it. But the truth is that we can tend to be ungrateful. We're going to look at the, uh, a story this evening in which there is a man that responds in a very unusual way to God, to Jesus specifically, healing him. Now, we looked at Nicodemus. We looked at the Samaritan woman at the well. And these people, they, there was no miracle done to them. And Jesus prophesied, kind of read the Samaritan woman's mail, so to speak. But he didn't do any miracles, though Nicodemus may well have seen some of Jesus' miracles at Passover. So this is possible. But they, when they were confronted with truth, you must be born again, Nicodemus, to the Samaritan woman. I have living water that I can give to you, and I can satisfy your thirst like forever. And he's talking about this thirst, this spiritual thirst for Jesus Christ. For truth, for something that would satisfy her because she was looking in all the wrong places like the love of man to satisfy that ache in her soul. She had been married five times and the person she was living with wasn't even her husband. And Jesus knew that, there, that what he had to offer her would completely revolutionize her life as it did with Nicodemus. And we know that Nicodemus stepped into this relationship with Jesus Christ through faith because of what he says later in John's Gospel and what he did later in John's Gospel to demonstrate this. We're going to read a story about a man that didn't take on a different attitude. We're going to need to look at why, why would he do this? And I think we're going to find that why he did it, it's going to come a little bit close to home for most of us. Let's look at this. John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the shepherd gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed, one of them, one who was there, had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes ahead of me. And Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. At once, the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place uh -oh, was the Sabbath. <clears throat> and so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, The man who made me well said to me, Pick up your mat and walk. So he asked, so they asked him, Who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? 
The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd <clears throat> that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, for behold, you are well. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. I don't know about you, I think I would be a little, my knees would be shaken at this point. Someone who just healed me and is now warning me, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Well, verse 14, verse 15, what did the man do? The man went away, good so far, and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. What do you mean? Come back. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at work. To this very day, and I too were working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Father, I just pray, give us insight into your word as we delve into the truths of John 5. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to your church. Would you do that, Father? And plant your word deep in our heart. Help us not to just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Houston, I think we have a problem. There's a man here who's healed, and Jesus rebukes him for how he handled it. We're going to need to put this under a microscope. We're going to have to look at this a little bit closer and ask, what is going on? Did Jesus really rebuke him? And if he did, for what reason? What is, what's the problem? What's the real issue here? Well, first of all, we discover that this happens at a feast of the Jews. We're not told whether it's the Passover or not. Generally, when it's a Passover, John tells us, and he does it here. So maybe it's this, the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe it is... Pentecost, there were three Jewish feasts in which men had to attend. So three Jewish feasts a year that the men had to attend. Sometimes their families would go with them, sometimes not, but the men had to. Whatever they learned, whatever they gleaned from it, they would go back and they would then pass it on to their families. But it's just going to be a, a difficult situation for all families everywhere, entire families, to converge on Jerusalem for three feasts, at least three feasts a year. <clears throat> so just the men had to. During this feast, which means that there's a lot of people in Jerusalem, a lot of men in Jerusalem, they were witnessing something. Now, there is a pool. It's called Bethesda in the Aramaic. And this is where the incident takes place. Now, for hundreds of years, oh, well, I, I shouldn't say for hundreds of years, but... In our, it, it, with just a few hundred years ago, we had no idea where this pool of Bethesda was. We're not exactly sure when man lost track of where it was, but it was apparently destroyed to some degree, and it was discovered maybe about a hundred or so years ago, and it was discovered just north of the temple, near what's commonly called the Sheep Gate. Now, I'm not going to get into some specifics here as you dig into this. As if you were to read commentaries, you would discover things like, well, there's 
it's just sheep by itself, and, it, and the word gate is not in the Greek. So is it the sheep pool? I suggest it's not the pool. There's an upper pool and lower pool. The lower pool is about 30 feet deep. Try taking care of washing the sheep in that pool. But the truth is that it has five colonies. Now, I want you to think of a pool. When was the last time you saw a pool that would have had five colonnades? See, a colonnade would be a porch with a roof on top. Now, try to picture that in your mind. You would immediately think, wait, 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 wait. Like almost every pool that I've seen is more square. And, well, some of them are interestingly shaped these days, I suppose. But colonnades, you can think of, well, there's four. Why would you suggest that there's five? Is John just wrong? Many people, honestly, skeptics, they thought that John was mistaken. Five, no way. Well, here's what they discovered. They discovered there was an upper and a lower pool. One overflowed into the other, and there was a divider right in the middle, making the fifth colonnade. So it was actually two pools. They just called it one, and that is Bethesda. Many have thought that it was a mikvah, a Jewish mikvah, which would be a place that would, for cleansing. So you would go into the pool for spiritual cleansing, washing, ceremonial washing. Well, they discovered this pool. They kind of answered some archaeological questions about it. It is just north of the temple, so it makes sense that, Jesus, that he would find Jesus at the temple. But when he comes to the pool, Jesus sees this man, and Jesus has compassion on him. It doesn't say Jesus woke up to anyone else. Remember John 2. Jesus knew the heart of every man. Jesus asked him, so how long have you been in this condition? And the man says, 38 years. And then Jesus says, do you want to get well? Now that is kind of a stupid question. Of course he does. <laughs> I want to just tell you this. God never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. That generally God asks a question because he's looking for how you will respond to that question. In Genesis 3, after the fall, God did not lose track of Adam. But he asked, Adam, where are you? Because now he's about to draw out from Adam, why are you hiding in the first place? Throughout scripture, you can, you can do this. You can just go through every question, and Jesus, just like a good lawyer, should practice Jesus knows the answer, and he's drawing out what this person is saying. So what does this person say? Why does Jesus want to draw this out of the man? He says, the, the man says, basically, I have no one to help you. See, apparently, the water would get stirred. We don't know how the water would get stirred. Tradition, and this is actually in the King James Version, but... This, this verse, verse 4, is not found in the earliest translations, earliest versions of the Bible. And consequently, as we look at it today, we come to realize that this, is an, this was an addition of a verse to help explain how the waters got stirred, but it just apparently is not in the original Greek. So most modern translations don't have it. And that is that an angel stirred the water. Now, can I just say that that's certainly a possibility Jesus does not comment 
on the stirring of the water. How the water got stirred, it, it, it could have been maybe a little crack in the flooring and that there, were, there was gas that would come up. All right? They don't know, but the water would be stirred, and apparently people would go into the water, and God would choose to apparently heal some. Now, according to this, what this man says, and again, that's all we have to go on, because listen, Jesus does not choose to talk about that for a really good reason. But I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Jesus asked him this. The man says, well, apparently, by the time I get down there, people have already beaten me, and they're the ones who get healed, and not me. Jesus then commands him. He tells him, get up. It's a command. In the Greek, it's the imperative. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk three verbs in the command form. The man does this, and he's healed. 38 years, he's been an invalid. Now, it may be that he can't walk at all. It might be that he walked with a limp. It might be that he could only put a little bit of what we don't know. The Greek is just simply means a sickness, and we realize that he can't walk, so guess what the sickness is, guys? It's, in, it's disabling him. So the, the word there in, in verse 3 that says disabled person, the word in verse 5 of invalid, they're the same Greek word. The idea is that the man either can't walk or can barely walk, and he needs help to get down to the pool. Now, I can imagine that they probably can't lay right next to the pool, for some rule, for whatever rule is. So he has to walk or crawl some distance. But he says, there's nobody to help me. Jesus heals him. It's awesome. Can you imagine being an invalid for 38 years and you have tried everything you can? I can imagine that he tried some doctors maybe before he ran out of money. Now he's trying to come to this perhaps a mikvah, whatever it actually is. He's, maybe this is the answer, but every time he comes, he can't get down to the pool, and he feels stuck, he feels trapped, until Jesus comes along and he heals him, totally healed, totally well. He can walk, I'm sure he can jump, he can dance. Jesus just healed me. I want to ask you, how would you feel at that point, 38 years like that, and then the day comes, you're totally Healed. Wouldn't it be amazing, Sharon, if Jesus just healed your heart right now? Yes. That would be amazing. Amen. Karen, if you were completely healed of every malady that you're struggling with, Kat, completely healed. Woo. I mean, imagine how that would affect you emotionally and in every way. That, wow. Jesus, thank you. What does this man do? Look at the passage. What does this man do? Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And so the Jews, remember what that phrase means, the Jews. John uses that term, the Jews, usually to talk about Jewish leaders who are in opposition to Jesus. That's how this phrase is used. And so here they are. They're questioning the man. What are you doing carrying your mat? He was carrying his mat, and according to Jewish tradition, that was unlawful. Now, let me just say, on the Sabbath, the law was, don't work. Nehemiah, chapter 13, he rebukes people because on the Sabbath, they're carrying a heavy load, 
apparently for their business on the Sabbath. And he rebukes them for it. That's work. So what the Jews did was, and, and there was a man who on the Sabbath was picking up sticks one time, another man who was collecting manna on the Sabbath, and they were rebuked for this. So I can understand the Jews wanting to haggle over this. Okay, what exactly is work? Because we don't want to sin. I get that as a Jew. This was the law. Don't break it. Well, what constitutes work? So they came up with this brilliant idea of carrying loads. And, hey, your mat that you're carrying, that would be constituted as work. So you can't do it. What I'm more concerned about is how the man, you know, actually, before I get to what the man, how the man responds, I want to set this up just a little bit more. Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. Why would they be concerned about this? Because later, even though initially they're concerned about him carrying the mat, now they're concerned that Jesus actually healed him on the Sabbath. And we see this in verse 16. Where's the big deal? Notice Jesus, throughout his ministry, he never haggles with the details of the law. He never says, well, technically, healing isn't breaking, or technically, carrying your mat isn't breaking the Sabbath. He never happens with that. Do you know how he always responds to these questions? Number one here in verse 15, he says, hey, my father is working all the time. God, my father is working on the Sabbath. Can I just ask you, though, what is God doing on the Sabbath? What is he, what is he working? See, he is working his amazing, gracious, loving acts. And that's what Jesus is doing here. In Matthew 12, right? This, if you're taking notes, right down Matthew 12, two incidences that happen on the Sabbath. The first one, they're, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field of grain, and they're kind of just, you know, like gladiator while he's walking with his hands to the <laughs> side here. Anyway, I, I think that scene is a bit cool. Um, but anyway, as they're walking through, they're grabbing the grains, and they're kind of just grabbing them and pulling them off like that so the seeds are left in their hands. And then they rub them together like this. Get rid of the chaff as they're breaking through them. Blow the chaff away, and then they eat. I mean, I love, my, my daughter loves when she goes shopping. She gets she gets some uh, nuts for me, and then she gets sunflower seeds. And I didn't realize that they were for her salads, and then I'm eating away at them. Sunflower seeds are so awesome. And this is kind of like what this friend is like, I suppose. And so, but they're, they're walking through the fields, and see, they're working. Just like the Jews were not supposed to gather manna on the Sabbath, and God provided twice as much on Fridays, the day before the Sabbath, so that they wouldn't have to gather it on, on Saturday, the Sabbath. So the Jews figured, hey, walking through the fields is wrong. See, that's work. And Jesus approaches it this way. Listen to me. Jesus says, do you remember when David went to the temple and he asked the Amalek, hey, I need bread for me and my men. And so Ahimelech says, he's the high priest, he says, I'm sorry, but we only have the showbread here, and that's sacred. And David says, that's fine. And Jesus recognizes 
What David was doing was not sin. Why? Because there was a human need that was of greater significance, greater importance than the Sabbath law. I'm going to tell you this. Jesus tells us that the moral law trumps the ceremonial law. Why? Because in that very passage of Matthew 12, Jesus says this, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The ceremonial law would one day be completely fulfilled in Christ. The Sabbath would be completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Sabbath, along with new celebrations, festivals, we're told, eating, drinking, these types of things, these were shadows of the things to come. That is, the body that is found in Christ. The word, Greek word is soma. The body casts the shadow. The shadow are the sacrifices, the ceremonial law. They're simply pictures, vague pictures of what would one day occur through the cross and the resurrection and now in this new kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ, and all it would accomplish in our salvation. Amen. So the temple and all ceremonial things, they pointed to that, and they were completely fulfilled in Christ. So the Paul's to say, don't let anyone judge you according to what you eat or drink, or if you regard a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. Now some observe the Sabbath, and in Romans 14, Paul's really clear on this. He says, some treat one day more special. Some translations say more holy. It's just more special. It's, it's above the others. That would be things like festivals. That would be things like the Sabbath. He says, but one person, another person, treats all days alike as holy to the Lord. He says, don't look down on one another. Does Paul have an opinion about the Sabbath? See, he does. In that same chapter, he talks about clean and unclean foods. Paul definitely has an opinion about clean and unclean foods. Unclean foods and clean foods, all of that is fulfilled in Christ. All foods can be received. They've been blessed through two things, through the creation and God saying it is good, and then through prayer. First Timothy 4 tells us this. So it's fine to eat these things, clean or unclean. But Paul says, don't haggle over clean or unclean. This is eating and drinking. This is not what the kingdom of God is about. Amen. And so Paul is clear. Paul has a stance on this. He has a stance on whether you're vegetarian or meat lovers. I'm a meat lover. Okay? Some of, some of you may be vegetarians. That's okay. Some of you may observe the Sabbath. Can I challenge you, though? The real Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. It never changed. There's no scripture verse that says that the Sabbath changed. The Lord's Day, mentioned only once, Revelation 1, that was simply the resurrection day of Jesus, and Christians would gather on that day. doesn't mean that that was their Sabbath. There's no scripture verse that supports that. My point is simply this. Jesus realized that the Sabbath was one day, very soon, going to be fulfilled in what he was going to do. But in Matthew 12, when they tell him accused him of breaking the Sabbath, he says, yes, David ate what he was not supposed to, but there was the human need that trumped that law concerning only priests or Levites to eat the shelter. And then he goes on and he says, how about one of you, you have 
you have a, an animal and it falls into a ditch. How many of you are going to work to pull it out of the ditch on the Sabbath? And of course they would. Why? Because love, even if your animal, trumps the law concerning the ceremonial law, the Sabbath. The moral law trumps the ceremonial law. So Jesus heals on the Sabbath. May I just suggest to you that when the Jews thought about healing, that was a creative miracle. That when, If you were to look at it physiologically, and you're an invalid, and you can suddenly walk, something in your legs is made right. Whatever it might be, but there, there is a creative miracle that takes place. And the Bible says God created six days but rested on the seventh. Can I suggest to you that the Jews actually had a case in this? But Jesus doesn't haggle about it. To him, it's a petty argument. His main concern is this. Guys, the man with the shriveled hand, and he heals them. He's healed. The man who, can, who is lame and can now walk, he's healed. Praise God. Look what God did. Later, John 9, the man who was born blind can see. But it happened on the Sabbath. Jesus, you broke the Sabbath. May I suggest to you that Jesus may well have broken the Sabbath, but he did so because there was a higher law at stake here. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. The moral law trumps the ceremonial law. There was a man in need here. And the Jews would say, oh, just come back another day. See, they had this all backwards. Yeah, the man had a need. He's had a need for 38 years. You can come back the next day, but here's the real issue. Will the Son of God still be there? That is the greater issue. It's not whether the man still has need. Is Jesus still going to be here? Because that is all that matters. Amen. They couldn't see that. They didn't care less about whether Jesus was there because their eyes were truly blind. Blindness, that's John 11. We'll get to that later. So Jesus, though he, though he is working, so technically he's breaking the Sabbath, but see, the Sabbath was not made for man. Excuse me. Man was not made for the Sabbath. I got that right now. But the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the And so Jesus is operating under what God's higher order was in his law. So the, here's my main concern then. Jesus doesn't ever haggle about the Sabbath. He tries to give them a bigger picture, but he never haggles about the details. Here, the man is asked, why are you carrying your mat? He doesn't question the law. What does he do? Instead of supporting Jesus and saying, guys, I once was linked for 38 years, and this man, I don't know his name, I don't, I've never seen him before, he made me well. Look what God did. He doesn't approach it that way. Chapter 9, the blind man who is made well does. As a matter of fact, when that man is healed on the Sabbath and he's brought before the Jews, 
He defends Jesus. And this and the Jews kept saying back to him, but he's a sinner. He broke the Sabbath. And the man says, how can God listen to a sinner and heal me? He obviously is not a sinner. And in so many words, Jews, I think you have your theology wrong. And man, did that get them ticked off. But the man <laughs> supports Jesus. He defends him. Is that what we see here? Mm -mm. Why are you carrying your mat on the Sabbath? I don't know. He told me to. Well, who did? Uh, the guy who healed me. I don't know his name. He didn't hang around long enough. I didn't you know, get his home address and telephone number. You know, nothing. And so, well, the Jews are saying, we got to find this Jesus. So this, the, the one who had been healed finds Jesus later on at the temple. And Jesus says to him, no questions that John records, just says to him, look, look at yourself. You're healed. You're better. Look what God did in your life. Stop sinning. There's something worse is going to happen to you. Can I ask you, what's worse than 38 years as an invalid? May I suggest, there's probably other things, but the most significant thing is this. You will suffer with eternal punishment in a place called hell forever and ever and ever and ever. That's what went down. Wow. That's something to think about. God could bring a greater, a far greater punishment upon you. What does the man do when Jesus says this to him? Challenges him, warns him. Stop sinning. Command, stop sinning. He's begging him. He's not trying to just get down on his face. He's begging him, look what's happened to you. Stop sinning. Or something worse might happen to you. It's like it's harder. Jesus, please. What does the man do? He immediately leaves, goes to the Jews, says, yep. Jesus healed me. He's the guy. I just need to ask you, what is wrong with this guy? Something's not right. That's not what the blind man in John 9, and we're going to talk about several weeks from now, that's not how he responded. I would ask you that hardly anyone who was healed would respond like this. Something's wrong with this man's heart. I'm going to suggest to you. And here is where we need to bring this home because this is going to touch every single one of us. He's a blame shifter. He has a victim mindset. You know what a victim mindset is? When something happens that's bad in my life, it wasn't me. I, I love the movie Rocket Man from, I think it's Disney. It's a comedy movie in which they go to Mars and, and he's just a, he's kind of a bubbling idiot. He's smart, super smart in some ways. Disaster follows him everywhere he goes. And when disaster happens, his famous line in the movie, it wasn't me. Oh, it was Julie. It wasn't me. <laughs> I think that that happens to many of us. I would suggest it happened with this man. Number one, 38 years of wanting God to heal him. When the Jewish mindset would many times say, if you're sick like that, it's your fault. In John 9, the disciples asked Jesus concerning the man born blind, was it this man's sin or his parents? And you know, that was wrong theology. But that was very prevalent theology in Jesus' day. 
if there's something wrong with you, what did you do? Well, this man was sick for 38 years. He's not going to leave. Well, there, there must be sin on him. I would suggest to you was, that was too hard of a conclusion to come to. And I suggest for this reason. When Jesus talks to him and says, do you want to get well? The man responds this way. I have no one to help me. Pause right there. I don't know this man's complete story. I don't know all of the circumstances. But if you were sick for 38 years and you were going to the pool, wouldn't you do everything you could to befriend someone and say, hey, can you come with me today? And can you just, when if the water is stirred, could you help me into the pool? Or I'm just going for a few hours. Can you can you just be with me? Somehow get someone there. Or when you get there, say, excuse me, young man, how long are you going to be here for a couple hours? If the water gets stirred, could you help me into the pool? And I just have to ask, why was no one ever helping him into the pool? Have you ever met someone who is a chronic friendship? Never wanted to accept responsibility for anything. If it, it's not my fault, it must be your fault. It must be your. It must be his fault. It can't be my fault. I've known some very close people who, all too many times, would throw someone else under the bus so that they would have to be helped on the cross. Many times this happens in the marriage. Many times, listen to me. That's where it starts off. Can I get real personal with you right now? That happened to me this morning. I got into an argument with my wife. She's going to come around one day. (laughs) See, that was the problem with that. That's the mindset I had. She just doesn't understand. And and I I was the one who initiated it. I asked her a question. I won't get into it about a particular issue. And I got defensive. And then she, I was attacking her, and she got defensive. And before you know it, it was we weren't raising our voices, but we were definitely not expressing our opinions in love, and especially in love. And we were done that conversation, and it wasn't really resolved. I went back into my study, because guess what? I was working with a sermon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> and so I went back into the study, and I'm praying, and for about an hour, God and I had and it went a little bit like this, Lord. If you would just help my mother see my voice. <laughs> Let's be honest, guys, in your marriages, we don't have too many uh, men here who are married, but have you ever wondered, God, when are you going to change her? Because it's probably making the marriage pretty rough. Ladies, come on now. Have you not asked that question before? God, he is just so stubborn. If there's just, he's full of pride. And if you would just see my point, he'd be all better. This marriage would be happy if he would just change. Do this. We blame shit. And so here I am, and, I'm, and God just begins to show me, you know what, Mike? Step out of your shoes, look at it from her perspective, and I began to realize there was more to this than what I allowed myself to say. And I began to think through it, and I said, you know, if I were in her shoes, I think I'd be really concerned, too, about this. And that's where I was just, 
why are you concerned? What, what's wrong with this? And I begin to realize, wow. And I can talk to myself with it. Wow, I was an idiot. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was. I need to apologize for my life. And God just beat me into, and I said, okay, God, because this is important. Once we recognize our issue, we now need to remedy the issue. How would I have handled that differently? How could I have approached it differently? And we need to ask ourselves that question. I want to suggest to you that this man never did. He was a blame shifter. When, he was, when the Jews asked him, why are you carrying your mat? wasn't me. <laughs> he points the blame to Jesus. He made me do it. Yeah, he made me. He commanded me to do it. Why? Because 
that she now is beginning to find her satisfaction in God. With Jesus as the Messiah, she truly believed that Jesus is the Messiah. Come and see a man. She begins to tell the other Samaritans in Sukkot. I'm going to suggest to you this man, his heart does not change. Why does Jesus do miracles? Basically for two reasons. Well, maybe three. I mean, he sees the Father doing it. We're going to get into that next week. Sees the Father doing it, so he does it. I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. Number two, though, it's a display of God's kindness, God's love in a person's life. Because God loves the sinner. He loves you as a believer in Jesus Christ. He wants to have compassion on you. He wants to heal. So many times he will do this to display that love. But there's a third reason, and that's because God allows this, and even allowed the problem in the first place, so that you would come to the point in which you desperately need him. And when he comes through, that your heart would be changed. And there's a response in your heart of God. You are so good. Where is that in this man's life? I'm going to suggest it's nowhere because his heart has not changed. And because his heart's not changed, because this did not pierce that blink-shifting victim mindset mentality that just encrusted his heart, he's got Jesus in that. I'm going to suggest to you, he doesn't believe in Jesus. He doesn't repent of his sins. And this is why Jesus says, stop sinning. In other words, get your heart right. Let me tell you, we looked at this last Tuesday night when we went through the end of chapter 2 of Radical, for Foundations for Radical Christian Living. We talked about faith and repentance, do you remember? True, genuine faith. What happens? You do good works. Are you saved by faith and good works? Absolutely not. But James, in James chapter 2, wants to recognize there's a difference between the type of faith that the demons have and the type of faith that a true believer in Jesus Christ should have. There's a difference. There's a world of difference. One is not genuine, Satan's faith. There's no repentance. He believes truth. As a matter of fact, Satan may well believe more truth about the Bible than most of these. But does he repent? Does it change his life? Absolutely not. I mean, come on, he's been around 6,000 years. How many of you been? So Jesus, excuse me, so Satan, the demons, they don't have genuine faith. There's no repentance. It is not genuine faith. But James still uses the word, they believe in his name. They believe. They believe the facts. They don't believe in Jesus. They have not repented of their sins. And so consequently, true genuine faith produces good works. It's not faithless works. It's simply true faith. But if you have true faith, you will see it by your changed life. Jesus looks at this man, and there's no change. And he calls him out on it. Hey, stop sinning. In other words, there's been no change in your heart. And if there's no change in your heart, careful, or something worse is going to happen. And he calls him on the carpet. His life, he did not allow God to change. 
Do you truly repent? Do you truly believe? True repentance is an act of the will. When it's true and genuine, something is transformed in us. John the Baptist, and I'm covering ground that we went over last Tuesday. John the Baptist told the, the Pharisees gathered around his baptizing of people, watching, and he calls them out. And he says, you brood of vipers. <laughs> oh, easy, John. You brood of vipers. And now, why are you standing around here looking at this? That's all about repentance. And he says this. He says, bring forth fruit of repentance. Show me your repentance with how you live. True, genuine repentance is an issue of the heart. It will inevitably display itself in a repentant lifestyle. Something changes. We don't change ourselves. That's crazy. You couldn't change yourself before Christ. Why do you think you're going to change yourself afterwards? It is about relying on the grace of God to change you. His spirit, the spirit of life, comes into you a dead spirit. A dead person, spiritually dead, and he changes you. Your lifestyle changes. I'm not saying you stop sinning completely. The only person who has ever not sinned, of course, is Jesus. Even Peter, Galatians 2 tells us this, Paul had to rebuke Peter for Peter's sin publicly until he rebukes him publicly. Peter wasn't sinless. Even after he had done so many miracles, even to the point where he would walk down a street, it says in, in Acts 5, and his shadow would fall on the sick and they were healed. Wasn't God working through him? I'm going to suggest, yes, he was. But he was still. He still said. His lifestyle had changed. Absolutely. So I'm not suggesting that we stop saying completely. But this is at the heart of the issue. The man's dead. Just never I would suggest that our takeaway from this is when God does something so profound in your life, and I'm just going to ask by a show of hands, how many of you have ever experienced the grace of God in which you just step back and say, wow, I feel so unworthy. God, you are so good because he did something so utterly amazing in your life. Raise your hand. When I was 14, I was just through faith in Christ, he changed me. And within a year, I looked back and said, man, I'm a different person. How did this happen? Guess how it happened? The grace of God. The spirit of life now in me. That's what changed me. And I'm not suggesting, because between the ages of 14, when I first gave my heart to Christ, to the age of 16, I was addicted to pornography. But God even changed that. Broke that chain in my life and set me free. I didn't walk away from them and now sinless. I know she's talked to my wife that she's wanting to be honest with me. <laughs> but I do know that God has done something amazing in my life. When I trusted in him, when I experienced his grace, it overwhelmed me. And I just want to live the rest of my life for him. This man did not. And that's John's he was caught up in this victim mindset that kept God at bay. And I'm going to tell you what, if you are unable to recognize that you're a sinner, the 
feel responsible for your sin. That because of your sin, not Adam's, your sin, I mean, Adam, yes, was a part of that equation, but your sin is what ends up sending you to hell. I'm going to suggest God doesn't necessarily send you to hell. He can catch you there, but it's because of your sin that you go there. Don't start blaming God. That's the victim mindset. You're the one that casts us to hell. Guess why? Because our heart is still rebellious. And God grant us grace in that. As we recognize that when, a, when, a, when an orange seed is planted, it produces an orange tree that produces oranges. Jesus said it this way. A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. My question is, what kind of fruit are you producing? What is your life realize that for a moment, yes, it's kind of a combination of things. But when you sin, is there something in your heart that is broken that you repent? The spirit heart is really not. That's smart. And God just challenges When we're confronted, let's own our sin. And let's say, okay, God, change me. Please, Jesus, can you stand with me? Well, Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word. Lord, help me. Give me grace to own my sin. Not be a blame shifter or a finger pointer. I realize that there are times in which others may be caught in a sin, and you who are spiritual should help such a one, but we do it in meekness. We do it in humility. To help. And Father, I don't want to be a finger pointer. I don't want to be blame shifting. It wasn't me. God, I just ask, help us, especially us men, but help us, God, to live our lives completely for you, starting with a repentant heart. And I just ask you, Lord, as you pour out your grace, may we choose to follow you. There is no better lifestyle, no better way to live this life than following you. Give us the grace, God, every single one of us. Father, if there's ingratitude in our hearts for the things that you have done, if we're fighting you, if we're angry with you, God, in your grace, in your love, be patient with us and pull us out of that junk out of the miry pit, God. Pull us out of that blame shifting. Pull us out of that, that victim mindset. Yes. Correct our heart, Lord God. Embrace it with your love. And Father, I just ask you, may we humble ourselves before you. And repent. You would change us. Every single one of us. Yes. Just continue that process until Jesus comes. And you take us home. You're so good. Father, thank you for all of the goodness that you have displayed in my life and all of these good people. Some of them, Father, have been struggling with sicknesses for years. And I just look at their heart and, man, I'm sure they struggle, but, Father, there is a heart of gratitude for all of the other things that you have done in their life. And I would pray, Father, that you would heal them by the power of the Spirit of God and display your grace in this way. But Lord, in the meantime, give them grace.
I will give us all comfort. I will call you.